Thousands protest, locked doors at the State House. Just another week at Broaden High. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Laura Bischoff, State House reporter for the Dayton Daily News. Bill Cohen, State House correspondent for Ohio Public Radio. Terry Casey, Republican strategist, and Sam Gresham of Common Cause Ohio. For the second week in a row, thousands of union members converged on the State House and demanded lawmakers scrap a collective bargaining overhaul. The bill they want to kill is Senate Bill 5. It would eliminate collective bargaining for state workers and limit it for local public workers. There was plenty of theater. Ted Strickland and Jesse Jackson showed up, and the protesters were locked out for a time. After the crowds left, word came of a possible compromise. Republican leaders and John Kasich said they were open to allowing collective bargaining on pay. So basically, uh, I I support the idea that our union members, our public employees, ought to have the right to bargain over their wages. But there's a number of things that that the taxpayers, represented by people like me and by the mayors and the city councils and the school boards in our communities, need to be able to have to control their costs. Bill Cohen, so under that idea, the unions would be able to bargain things just on their wages, but not things like health care, working condition, other benefits. So they're going to go for that. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, the Democrats uh, said it sounded like window dressing, and, and the unions didn't really come out with a, with a cheering on that, mainly because uh, they said, well, what's our leverage? Okay, you're letting us come to the bargaining table. What's our leverage? Uh, you've also added a provision, or you're going to, the Republicans said, uh, to wipe out uh, the idea of striking. So uh, without binding arbitration for the local safety forces, uh, without state employees having the right to strike or any of the public employees having the right to strike, they say you're really just giving us collective bargaining in name only. So what's next? Well, it looks like they might they may vote out the vote the bill out as soon as Tuesday from the Senate Insurance, Labor and Commerce Committee, if I got that right. And uh, and then maybe put it on the Senate floor uh, Wednesday or maybe even Tuesday afternoon. Depends on how things roll. As of, as of right now, as we're taping, they didn't have the, the notice out on when the committee, committee would meet. So there's been a lot of theater down there, public unions claiming that they're being made the scapegoat for this, Terry. Are they to blame for the $8 billion budget deficit that the, the state has right now? Well, the reality is Ohio is like a lot of states. Coming in Sunday's New York Times is a big magazine profile piece on the New Jersey governor. This problem is all over the country. It's in California. It's in New York. And there was polling that came out this week from the state of New York where they people there in that state supported a lot of reforms and changes that people want to work on. But my prediction a little early is whatever brouhaha is going on now is relatively mild till we get into March when we kind of, as the movie said, show me the money. Well, that's when the budget comes out and we realize we really don't have the money. So yes, this alone is not the $8 billion deficit, but just like the governor in New New Jersey, if you're going to start chipping away at it, it all adds up. You've got to somehow uh, end. We don't have the money we had at one time in Ohio. Why don't we just tell the truth? Let's stop. 
Yes, pasting it over. It has nothing to do with a budget. It never has nothing to do with a budget. It has to do with Republicans wanting to pay back unions and to destroy them so they won't support Democrats. Now, there are 44 states and the District of Columbus who have uh, shortfalls. We have nine to 18 states who are considering some sort of collective bargaining agreement. Corollary, I'm confused. Corollary, budget shortfalls, collective bargaining. I don't see the corollary. Why one relates to the other. If you want to improve budgets, you, there, there are four ways. If you have a bad economy, there are four ways of improving the economy. People buy more, companies invest more, uh, Companies export, export more, governments spend more. I'm just lost in the whole calculus. It seems like it's preposterous and it relates to nothing that makes sense whatsoever, except the political analogy. Am I lost? Well, why in New York State is a person named Cuomo, one of the greatest liberal names in American political history, battling the unions there? Why He's not asking on that to do state? away with collective bargaining. bargaining. He's asking for reforms on things like health care, which the unions have said yes we can give on health care and let's say set a minimum level of contribution on pensions and health care. Why not do that instead of scrapping all of collective well, bargaining? Part of it sometimes in the negotiating process you do something to get somebody's attention and say we got a problem. I mean in all honesty, we Ted, well, Ted Strickland left the state. He could have made a lot of changes in the last budget to tighten things down. Instead he did things that cost schools and other communities more money. None of that had to do with collective bargaining whatsoever. It's all tied into the cost. Eighty percent of the budgets for local communities, counties, deal with personnel costs. And if health care costs, uh, salaries are going up much more than the rate of this inflation. Is not new cities have sat down with unions and the unions have given back things. They've negotiated, negotiated reduction in wages. Everybody knows it's a hard time. You'll call it why the there is a there's a sort of a quasi deadline here that the lawmakers are facing why they have to get this out as Laura said perhaps as early as next week. Well, it's pretty clear that they that the unions and the Democrats are going to hit the streets once this thing passes and they'll have 90 days to collect something like 200,000 signatures. If they do that, they can block the law from taking effect and throw it onto the ballot for the voters to vote yes or no. If the Republicans act quickly enough, that referendum would have to take place this year an off-year election when not that many Democrats would be expected to come out and the law would have a better chance of surviving. If the Republicans don't act quickly, then the referendum would be next, not this November, next November 2012, presidential election year, a lot of Democrats coming out to vote and that could, uh, could sink it, the It would also abate the law until then, too, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. right. Um, Laura, the, the controversy over the locked doors, has um, that been settled now? If there's a protest next week, will as many people as can fit in the state house be allowed in. Uh, that, it's unclear. I think the Democrats uh, were looking at filing, filing some sort of a legal action to, to uh, you know, open the doors to the state house. Now the highway patrol, I'm told, w was the ones that that decided let's limit it because I think on Thursday on the 17th of February they had like 3,800 people, most of them crammed in the atrium. It was very very crowded. It was difficult to move through there, and I could see how. If there was some sort of an emergency, if somebody, you know, had some medical condition and they needed to get, well, of course, there were a lot of paramedics and firefighters there <laughs> on hand, but honestly, if they needed to get equipment in there, um, it, you know, they needed, they, they needed better access. Um, and then I, but I think it sort of swung a little bit further uh, on, on the 22nd because then they said, well, 1,200 in, and as people came in or left, they allowed more people in and out. And so they, they kept a lid on it, but there was still plenty of room in the crypt and in the rotunda. Right. 
and in some of the other hallways. It's the problem is everybody kept kind of congregating toward the atrium. And the atrium might hold 1,000, 1,500 people. The committee room maybe 100, 150. So everybody can't be in there. But the week before, I walked through the atrium area, and they had the speakers set up so people could hear the testimony, and people would cheer or jeer, depending upon what they were saying. Uh, but there are fire codes that limit how many people you can have in rooms. Ted Strickland showing up so soon after leaving office. Kind of unusual. Well, the Columbus Dispatch was pretty clear in Thursday's editorial. They don't like him, do they? Well, they Obviously. don't like him, and they don't <laughs> like unions. But in general, the common custom is when you've been in office and you've been asked to leave by the voters, you kind of leave graciously, and you 2. don't... 2.5%? You think you still may have some life? Uh, 77,000 votes is a lot more than Rhodes <laughs> beat Gilligan by in 1974. So you lose, you lose. Normally most people graciously go away and, re and respect the wishes of the voters for a change. But okay. let's face it, this is something, workers' rights is something that is near and dear to Strickland's heart. Sure. This is something he really believes in, and I think that he felt um, very... And the motivated or just really felt compelled to come out in support of the workers. And the unions, SEI, OEA, spent tens, I don't know whether it's 20 million, but I mean they spent millions on trying to get him reelected and it didn't work. So You know, that no. sort of circles back to what I think Sam was trying to say, which is that, um, you know, some people say that the bill is intended to cut government costs, give more flexibility, not just... Um, contract by contract, but for years and years in the future. But I think that there's um, the fact that the unions support Democrats typically, it does lend some credence to the argument that this is an attempt by the right to weaken the unions and take away, take away one of the Democrats' biggest contribution bases. Let's lead into that discussion. The debate over the collective bargaining reform bill has prompted a wider debate. Do we even need unions anymore? Sam Gresham, 150 years ago, with abuses in the textile mills, the meatpacking plants in Chicago, the mines, the unions served a very valuable role. I don't think anyone could argue that. But now, do we still need them? I'll contend that we need unions more than we did then, if not just as much. Uh, now, on the other side of it, let's look at it. Usually, where there's a union situation, wages are 5 to 15 percent higher. If you have a union situation, uh, work safety conditions are better. There are better ways to uh, solve disputes. Uh, there are systems put in place. There are training programs. The unions bring a lot of things that the working man, and particularly uh, lower level working people, get that are a benefit. I have to say, as a bias, we were sharecroppers in Mississippi, but when we got to Illinois, my father joined the union. So the quality of life for me and my family and my friends significantly changed. So I think the union brings those things. Now, on the converse side, there are people who say they become intractable, you can't deal with them, etc. I think there's a pro and con, but from my perspective, I think unions are very helpful. And the dilemma is sometimes, though, the unions uh, win, win uh, provisions that a lot of folks think are just excessive. I mean, you've got some state employees, I think, who can cash in some of their sick leave when they retire, uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours. And other workers look at that, or other folks, middle-class taxpayers, and say, that is excessive. So I think that's the problem when you have these, these anecdotal stories of, of things that are way over the top. Okay, I'll agree with you to, to this extent, but the corporate sector has made 
private sector's wages stagnate. It's a rush to the prob- to the bottom in the private sector where people are being paid little or nothing. They're working more hours. If they had unions, maybe they wouldn't have to do that. I don't think it's improved the quality of life. I think it's made it worse. Sam, let me kind of speak for the unions. I was reading last night this book on Theodore Roosevelt, and the United Mine Workers nationally were founded right here in Columbus. But example today, there's only one mine in Ohio that's unionized. So times have changed. So the history, unions really did serve a valuable need. And one of the great Ohioans, in fact, he's from my hometown of Coshocton, Ohio, William Green was head of the AFL nationally from 1924 to 1952. He moved unions more to cooperation. So there's some unions in Ohio that are very focused on cooperating, working with business, and there's others that always want to be in the confrontation. So part of it, you've got, I think, some unions have adapted to the times. Like today, the AFT is more for cooperation on how you do teacher dismissals, if they aren't of the quality, whereas the NEA group is a lot more strident in saying, no, we won't cooperate, we won't work to solve the problem. One interesting thing we saw at these protests, we didn't just see government workers there, we saw private company workers, steel workers, uh, utility workers, carpenters, plumbers. We said, what are you doing there? What are you doing here? This isn't your fight, is it? Oh, they say an injury to one is an injury to all, but not just theoretically. Uh, They're saying that if you push down the benefits and the wages for the government workers, the way the system works, indirectly, wages for everybody are going to be cut. That's that's absolutely correct, though. Uh, Laura, is it just the way the the economy has gone? I mean, it, the the unions were strongest or became strong when des- when conditions were the worst. Conditions are better now. Um, that that so might they, be they part of it. They don't have the it. same push as they as they used to. Um, no, they don't have the same push. Um, you know, in uh, in Ohio, union membership has been dropping in Ohio. Uh, it was thirty seven percent in nineteen sixty nine. Dropped down to thirty three in seventy nine. Twenty one in eighty nine. Eighteen percent in ninety nine. We're down to fourteen point two percent of, of uh, Ohio workers are, are in unions. Uh, the percentage is much higher in the public sector, though. It's about, a th- about 35% of public sector workers are, um, are still members of unions. And, you know, that, that covers 360,000 employees in the and, state. And to quote Bob Dylan, the times are a-changing. Bob Dylan. And a lot, yes, absolutely, <laughs> Bob Dylan. But part of the change is the unions. There's a lot of union workers saying, hey, for five or $600 a year, I'm paying my union. Am I really getting my money's worth? And how are they spending my money? Is it really helping me? Is it really helping kids in the classroom? Or is it just for the union activities and the big salaries of well, some think, union I officials? I think at times like this is when union members might see their dues really in, in action. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, if, if the union is able to, to muster um, enough opposition to Senate Bill 5 to mute it or change it a little bit or then, uh, you know, put it on the, on the ballot for a referendum, then I think that's when they see their union dues really working. You hear union activists say that if the unions go away, you're going to see the 40-hour work week go away, you're going to see benefits go away, you're going to see, you likely will see wages drop. But will we see, we'll go back to the day of child labor and lousy workplace rules. And well, like you, that. You, you josh about that. Uh, Senator Jane Cunningham in Missouri has asked that the child labor law be revoked. 
so that we and but is it a serious bill or is it just some <laughs> piece of paper they sent up to them? Well, I, I I look at legislation at what it is. She submitted it. It got drafted. It got a hearing. It's a piece of legislation that somebody is considering. So yeah, that's possible. I think there's a middle ground here. I think there's a function for for unions, but I also think Bill's right uh, and Terry to a degree too. Uh, sometimes they move too far and do things. But by and large, unions do great things for people, by and large. And I think they have a purpose. I find it sorry that people get angry at the benefits the unions have. And my response to them is to get a union, because they always say they have these Cadillac packages. But most of the middle class taxpayers don't have the benefit of those kind of Terry. benefit plans, those kind of pensions, and they, that's... They used to, though, when the union membership right. was a lot higher as a percentage. Right. It's that we've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, and, you know, like, for example, the auto industry, you know, I mean, it's still unionized, but they, they have taken concession after concession, concession after concession. After concession. And but so but that's a lot of the companies like Honda, they built their plants union through the building trades because they could work with them, but they didn't want to work with the UAW. Too. No, but they, they pay UAW skill wages. And they treat their, yeah, they treat their employees Oxymoron. well to keep the union out. So yeah. it's a union. Right. There is no more middle class. There isn't? No, sir. All right. Oh, really? <laughs> Let's get to some city politics and city uh, issues. Columbus Mayor Mike Coleman gave his annual State of the City address this week. He laid out plans to resurface streets and to work to revitalize struggling neighborhoods. And even though the city regularly offers tax incentives to lure workers to downtown Columbus from other cities in central Ohio, Coleman called on central Ohio cities and suburbs to work together instead of competing with one another. But the mayor was most passionate about gun violence. He singled out gun show operators at the Westland Mall where private sellers can sell guns without background checks. Without the proper background checks, unlicensed private gun sellers will have the ability to sell to gangsters, criminals, and drug pushers at the CNE gun show. CNE, we are calling you out today. We are calling you out. Terry Casey, the mayor, called on the firm's moral responsibility, but that's really all he can do because of the Supreme Court. Well, the reality is it makes a good soundbite, and it sounds good, but when you're mayor of Columbus, you can't legislate all around Columbus. And as you mentioned, there's a little thing called the U.S. Supreme Court as late as last summer that clearly said municipalities cannot restrict based on the Second Amendment. Uh, the other thing I think would be the best theater on your show, an upcoming thing, would be to have Ted Strickland, who is governor, was strong for gun rights, debating Mike Coleman. I think that'd be good theater and it'd be a good fundraiser for WSU. <laughs> but by calling out two businesses, the Westland Mall, who <laughs> leases their space to this company, and the company itself, he can't use political pressure, but he's using a little bit of business pressure. Might that help in, con in convincing Westland perhaps not to have this uh, show. Politicians on both sides like to posture and grandstand, and I give him an A-plus for uh, a good applause line in a speech, but in reality it doesn't change anything of the crime problems actually existing in Columbus, because we were over 100 murders in Columbus last year. Yeah, say that the mayor does need to show he's doing something on the crime issue. He's being opposed by Earl Smith, a former policeman, and it seems that you'd think that's about the, his only Achilles heel right now. Usually the mayor is pretty popular. And he is pushing state lawmakers to not pass the concealed weapons in bars. bars. 
thing and also some loosening some restrictions on who can have a gun permit. So that's, he is using politics there to try to influence state law. But I think it makes sense from his perspective and the communities that he represents to take a strong posture on that. I mean, we can give you thousands of examples of tragedies that have occurred as a result of a, of a handgun. And the right to have these type of weapons seems to be absurd, but there's a class and a group of people who want these weapons. Um, but until you, uh, and then you don't talk about another group. How do you protect the first responders, fire and police, in these types of cases? 30 magazines for a Glock 9? 30 round magazines for a Glock 9? Why do we need that? So there's some absurdity with it, and there's some politics, and there's some theater. But when you get down to the basis of it, it makes sense. The other thing that caught my ear was the mention that he'd like the cities to work together and not compete. But it seems like Columbus does a lot of poaching from other areas when they offer like half uh, income tax credits to Nationwide to bring their people downtown. Well, or you mean when they gave mega million dollar subsidies to Children's Hospital, keep them from moving to New Albany or University Hospital from moving wherever. I mean, in some ways, I think the Ohio legislature ought to address this issue so we don't have businesses playing off communities to try and get a better piece of the action. That's who he targeted. He targeted the corporations. But isn't it like blaming the Yankees for Alex Rodriguez accepting a $300 million contract? I, I agree with you, but it's the absurdity of the system. Uh, one time, you and I will probably agree. I agree. It's stupid. We should function as a region. And he started talking about that. We should function as a region, and we'll do better for ourselves if we do that. And state laws ought to be changed so you can keep politicians and business people from uh, doing the worst things. So is that a truce? Do you think he's signaling a truce to the suburbs and other no, communities? I, I think he's getting Ohio? ahead. Mm -hmm. I think he's getting ahead of a trend that's already occurring. And because of the money crunch, I, it makes good politics and it makes good business sense. Okay, our last topic, casino has its second Casino Control Commission in two months. You'll recall the Senate rejected Columbus attorney Rocky Saxby and his fellow would-be commissioners. Now John Kasich has formed his own commission. The chair is a familiar face, former House Speaker Joanne Davidson. Laura Bischoff, uh, will casino gamblers, and like Joanne Davidson, what will she bring to the to the commission? Well, she's, um, you know, of course, former Speaker of the House, and, and she is uh, she's very much um, somebody who can keep people in line. She will... I think she'll run a really good commission. She's very sharp. Uh, she's um, over 80, but uh, still uh, plugging her along real strong. She's got a long history of public service. She's a, seen respected by both, both sides, so it's not a very political, she's certainly Republican, but it's not a very political choice. And I think the most important thing, I know Joanne very well, she's incredibly detail-oriented. And when you're going to be the watchdog on the casinos and also as the governor looks at what might or might not happen on VLTs, on skill games, other kind of things, having somebody that's detail-oriented is very important because the rules need to be made and they need to be enforced to protect the consumers. The, ca the Kasich administration also signaled that they want to do some sort of uh, overall coordinating. There's, you know, there's charitable gaming through the AG's office, regular AG's office. The racing commission's got horse racing, the lottery, mm -hmm. lottery, and now this casino gaming commission. So maybe there could, there, there's room for some sort of umbrella or coordinated approach to it. Of course, the commission can't change major aspects of this. They can't change the 33% tax rate. But that's what I think is the real interesting story behind the scenes, not really so much at the commission, but in the governor's office. They're trying to figure out how can we get these more casinos money. to pay more than 33% without going back to the voters and changing the Constitution. They're trying to figure out how can we make them pay more 
the back door, some other way to wring money out of them. Could he be? You could he possibly use the commission to as a as a bargaining chip, no pun intended, to to say, look, we're going to write really tight rules here, unless you give up. I think forty five percent. I think that's the signal that he's sending, that he wants to say, hey guys, we need to play here, and we can play in different ways. I'll also support everybody else around the table. I think Ms. Davidson's a good, a good person for this. Of all the choices he could have made, and there could have been some real wacky choices, I think this was a good choice. <laughs> I'll tell Joanne you said she's less wacky. Right? Oh, she's an excellent lady, Tim. <laughs> I know. Ted Strickland <laughs> took some criticism for his proposed appointees in that they were, they were close. Some, many of them were relatively close to casino gambling. Looking at, um, at, at first blush at these names, it doesn't seem to be somebody who is close to casinos, but also may not have the expertise in how casinos operate. Is that well? A everybody in Ohio has got a learning curve because this is not something that we're used to because we haven't had it in Ohio. And also, as you look across the country, there's no one state that has a perfect system to how to regulate and do this because so many states do it differently. And hidden in this law actually gives the Casino Commission on July 1st responsibility for the mess of the skill games that's going on in Ohio. Uh, and that's something that's unregulated right now and no revenue goes to the state. So they've got a lot of uh, things on their plate and a lot of learning to do. All right, let's get to our final off-the-record parting shots. Sam Gresham, you're up first. I think the... Uh Republicans may have made a miscalculation about how to institute these changes with unions and if they can sustain themselves uh, for 24 months, it may radically change the political outlook during the 2012 election. Terry. Rather than a prediction, I want to recognize somebody who unfortunately passed away at a young age of 61 this week. Larry Black was library director in Columbus, and he took the library, and I served on the board with him 14 years, from a library that was pretty mediocre, great deal of building, and in 1999 they became number one in the nation, and uh, he deserves some recognition because in Columbus we like things that are number one. Indeed. Bill Cohen? They say we're not going to have tax hikes to solve the $8 billion budget mess, but watch out for some fee hikes, a whole lot of them. The first one just being unveiled. Uh, it doesn't sound like much. $10 uh, fee hike on title transfers of cars. It's not a huge deal, but it could be the first of a whole avalanche. Hey, Laura. Uh, I'll be predictable in my prediction. I think that uh, Senate Bill 5, it may be changed. It won't be blocked, and it's going to be a long battle. Okay. My off-the-record comment is if they do expand the number of calamity days from three to five. I hope they change the name. Calamity days? <laughs> three inches of snow is a calamity? How about just school cancellation days? It covers it all. No hyperbole. I urge them to do that. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. Please check us out online. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. You can connect to all of that at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. For our crew at WOSU at COSI and our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>